Oh, it's not like it used to be. <laughs> G'day and welcome to the Anarchist History of New Zealand podcast. This is the history of New Zealand through a libertarian anarchist lens, specifically that of Rick Giles. Please enjoy the ideas and let me know what you think. In this episode, we will be exploring a massive solar storm called the Carrington Event as it impacted on New Zealand. But before we get into that story, an audio clip from New Zealand's history. following is an exchange from a TVNZ7 broadcast from February 2012, though it may have been a rerun. On his show Talk Talk, Finlay MacDonald spoke to New Zealand physicist Paul Callaghan, who died in March 2012, just a month after this recording. As I say, it could be a rerun. Callaghan was a baby boomer, and this is what he had to say, simultaneously, about scientific inspiration and being a boomer. That's what inspired you to start communicating about science. What inspired you to get into science in the <laughs> first place? <laughs> Look, I was a child of the 50s, and it was the world of Whanganui, you know, like most of small-town New Zealand where kids ran wild, you know, boys made their own activities outdoors. We made boats in the river. We made telephones, crystal sets, explosives, you know. Uh, we did stuff in the physical world, the natural world. I hadn't actually thought of it like that, but in fact, that sort of childhood is sort of a scientific childhood in it a is, sense, yes, isn't it? Yeah. I think kids growing up on farms have a lot of that too, it's interaction with the natural world. And uh, it, it, These days it's very different. Kids have a much more of an indoor life focused around electronic media. You don't fix anything. Everything's sort of thrown away when it doesn't work. You know? um, there was a time when if you owned a motor car, you had to be able to you know, repair it, get inside yeah. the bonnet. Now you open it up and you don't understand what on earth's going on in there. It's too mysterious. So that's the modern world. There's a bit of a conundrum there, there then, isn't there? I mean, we're on the one hand celebrating our scientists slightly more than we perhaps <laughs> used to, and on the other hand, we're taking away the conditions that would yeah, perhaps encourage but, them to but, but become But I think we're scientists. all aware of how much science... Callaghan did not address that conundrum. Instead, he tangented back to his on-message topic of how great science is. However, MacDonald raised a great point right there. The children and the grandchildren that Callaghan's generation raised, the Gen X and the Millennial Kiwis, were not able to, quote, run wild and have that, quote, scientific childhood that the parents of the boomers allowed. Instead, the boomers insisted on strict safety rules for their children. For example, the deconstruction and sanitization of the adventure playgrounds at school also for example, the compulsory cycle helmets from the 1990s. Callaghan seems to agree with Albert Einstein that imagination is more important than knowledge, yet his generation replaced unstructured hands-on learning with the expansion of formal learning at compulsory government schools. It's interesting, isn't it? Later in the same interview, Callaghan talks about his history model for New Zealand science as having three phases. A transformational experience on the way to Oxford. I saw a 747 aircraft for the first time. I was sitting on the runway in Athens Airport. I couldn't believe the size of this plane. But it became apparent to me that it would be possible in the future 
to do international science based in New Zealand, that suddenly, instead of having six-week boat journeys, you could take this aircraft across the world in a single hop in 24 hours and get to international conferences. So there were a number of us around that time in the early 70s who decided to cut a new path in science, which mm. previously was that if you wanted to be a scientist, as Rutherford did or Alan McDiamond did, you left the country, you didn't come back. You simply couldn't do that You couldn't do it. Here, you you couldn't, couldn't, well, you could possibly do some research, but journals took a long time to come. Mm. You couldn't get to international meetings. Uh, nobody would come and visit you and work in your lab. It was all too far. And that changed dramatically with, uh, with, with jet aircraft. So you actually had that epiphany, you realised. Well, I... That um, idea that you could be in New Zealand and study at an international level... Yeah fits into your, your theory that science in New Zealand has basically been in, or run in three phases. Yes, you know, the, the ones who left, the ones who could stay. What, what phase are we in now? Well, I think we're moving into phase three. So in phase two, when we said, let's try to be international scientists in New Zealand, what were we all trying to do? We were trying to publish in the best journals. We wanted to go to the international meetings and show that we were doing great science and encourage uh, uh, top people to come and work in our labs from the rest of the world. So we had this totally international focus all the time. But at no time were we thinking... What difference is making to our country? How is it transforming New Zealand? In a sense, we were kind of living this world outside, uh, which didn't seem to connect. And uh, the, the realisation that I came to a few years ago was, did it make any difference to New Zealand? I mean, who, why should the taxpayer pay for me to be publishing international journals? Or more pointedly, if we looked at the money that's spent on scientific research, and I've had a lot spent on me over the years, and you start to translate it, that into hip replacements or Herceptin mm. breast cancer treatments, you would say, well, why would the taxpayer pay for Paul Callaghan to do his science and go to international meetings uh, rather than have a few more hip replacements? Well, that's the question. How, how do you answer it? Well, I think that's, uh, there has to be an answer. And once you know the answer to that, <coughs> then um, uh, you've got some sort of realisation. Once again, Callaghan doesn't answer the question that's been put to him. And, as before, MacDonald has put an essential issue before his guest. What is the economic value to New Zealand of men like Professor Sir Paul Callaghan and the work that they do? Unfortunately, both men, not being familiar with Hayek's use of knowledge in society, probably have a statist answer. Visions of some command economy solution where the Prime Minister or Minister for something decide to divert millions of tax money into a lucky court favourite so that they can muck about with physics in ivory towers and be very well paid. If that is what both men were thinking, then perhaps that's why they fell silent on the matter and moved along. But Callaghan's three phases of New Zealand's science history are quite interesting. He saw himself in a second phase, made possible by the jet plane, where New Zealand could produce scientists and keep them. Our physicists, like Rutherford and Pickering, were in phase one and they had to go offshore. Callaghan's career was spent in phase two where New Zealand paid him to be part of an international scientific community. As such, our nation was producing knowledge and exporting it for no charge. Worse, our medicine and our industry had to import knowledge and technology from the great hubs of learning overseas. Callaghan had poured his life's work into exporting that knowledge New Zealand paid for out beyond our borders. It's interesting that at the end of his life, Callaghan had a vision of a phase three in our history, a quite nationalistic vision where New Zealand science isn't something we leak away but use ourselves toward our own productivity. I think that idea died with the man who thought of it back in the early 2010s.
Who champions that now or even mentions it? Probably nobody. We are not in Callahan's Phase 3, but remain a cultural and scientific colony to other, larger economies up in the Northern Hemisphere. Anyway, enough of that. It's time to leave the 2010s and get back to the 1850s. Our sun is one big explosion, which would engulf us all in a fiery death, were it not held back by its own mass. One day in the far future, enough matter will have burned off, so the sun's gravity will not be able to restrain the blast from turning our planet to cinders. It's rare in human history, but we've already been lashed by small such outbursts many times. The Carrington event was the largest such solar geomagnetic event ever recorded. It was observed in New Zealand from 30 August to 2 September 1859, and we're fortunate to have several witnesses. Apart from a beautiful light show, there is a danger to us in experiencing the next Carrington event. Lines of circuitry for our electrical appliances and transmission lines, including telecommunications, are all sensitive to such an extraterrestrial power surge. Man-made electromagnetic pulses, EMPs, have long been weaponized in real life, but more often turn up in video games or movies. For example, Captain America the Winter Soldier. On July 9, 1962, the USA detonated such a device in the upper atmosphere of the Pacific. Now declassified, the Starfish Prime test had the unanticipated result of damaging American civilian infrastructure. Phone lines, streetlights, and security systems were made to fail or be destroyed in Hawaii some 1,000 kilometers from the blast. When the sun reaches the peak of its voluminous red giant hood, it will extend to somewhat more than 100 times its present diameter, so that both Mercury and Venus will be engulfed within its substance. Earth may remain outside the swollen bulk of the sun, but, even if the Earth does this, the enormous heat it will receive from the giant sun is quite likely to vaporize it. The death of the sun, catastrophes of the second class, a choice of catastrophes, Asimov, 1979. The 30th of August 1859. Last night the southern lights appeared in brightness like twilight, from south by east to southwest. At first the color was pale pink. In the southwest a coruscation of a pink color rose 45 degrees. It was very faint. A rough night. Barometer this morning 28.55. Memoir of the Reverend Richard Davis, John Noble Coleman, 1865, Early New Zealand Books, Auckland University. 2D September 1859. The southern lights awfully grand, extending nearly to southwest and a point or two from south to east, and from the horizon nearly vertical overhead. Color a light fiery scarlet. Ibbard. All lovers of nature were charmed last Monday evening by the rare occurrence of the southern lights. This mysterious phenomenon, commencing about half past 6 p.m., bore at first the singular appearance of daybreak. Extending to an elevation of about 30 degrees, the gradually increasing light was seen to quiver at intervals, and then vanish from the eyes like a dissolving view. The rays emitted, at first almost indistinct, afterwards formed themselves into coruscations shooting up from the south and southwest horizon. These becoming after a little time still more clearly defined against the evening sky presented the shape of luminous bars with an apparent edge plainly marked on the western side. 
In the meanwhile a reddish tint was observed to be spreading almost imperceptibly over the south portion of the heavens, Taranaki Herald, 3 September 1859. Papers passed. Our 1859 ancestors were living in the steam age, not the electric age, so suffered no widespread damage. In the more technically advanced northern hemisphere, however, telegraph lines were seriously damaged. Quote, telegraph systems all over Europe and North America failed, in some cases giving telegraph operators electric shocks. Telegraph pylons threw sparks. Some telegraph operators could continue to send and receive messages, despite having disconnected their power supplies, unquote. New Zealand's first telegraph line came on 1 July 1862. The rationalist and pantheist saw nature in her most exquisite robes, recognising the divine immanence, immutable law, cause and effect. The superstitious and the fanatical had dire forebodings and thought it a foreshadowing of Armageddon and final dissolution. Carrington Witness at Victoria, Australia, C.F. Herbert, Wiki. Generations prior to 1859 would have detected little or nothing because they had no widespread use of metal circuits. However, the next pulse, natural or man-made, will be a very different story. Our lives have come to depend on networks and devices unshielded from an EMP. From heating, to transport, to communication, to health, to cooking, to anything you can think of. Whenever we have any diaries or reports of August-September 1859, it's worth having a glance to see if our New Zealand ancestors noted this disturbance. Did they fear or anticipate the lights in the sky? Did animals behave oddly, perhaps disorientated homing pigeons? Did any of their household goods shudder or shock as if animated by some otherworldly spirit? Perhaps a neck chain might give a lady a shock around her neck or a wire corset a jolt in her sitting room. A bird in a wire cage, a little bit more crispy than he was the day before. That's the end of this episode of the Anarchist History of New Zealand podcast. Thanks for listening. Please let me know what you thought and do visit the AHNZ website. The next episode will take us to 1948 and here's a small sample of that show to end this one. Ever since, the state has been in control of the bird and has expended treasure untold on their welfare program. By the early 1980s, the government had killed 75% of the remaining birds, 400, and only now, 40 years later, has the population recovered. It's now at about 418.